Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. called The Other Side of the Fence, adapted from a series by Andy Stanley. And uh, our purpose for the series has been simple. Uh, We have been wanting to talk with people who have left behind their Christian faith and completely jumped the fence, moving away from the church and their faith. And we want to invite you to reconsider. Reconsider whether the reasons you left your faith, even though they likely were some very good reasons, are not the whole picture. And uh, we want you to reconsider that there might be a way to find real vibrant faith, the faith that you haven't fully recognized yet, but you rejected a version of Christianity and likely not the real thing that Jesus invites you to. So we want you to reconsider. For those of you who are still part of the church, but some of you have kind of put a lower priority on church and faith, you've kind of put some distance between you, just kind of being partially in. I want to... I want to invite you to more thoroughly and fully engage in the way you find a vibrant faith in Christ because of this series. And for those of you who are hanging around church all the time, you're church junkies and you're here all the time, and and this series, I think, has probably been good for you as well. And our purpose for you has been, it's the reality of life is, is our strength of passion goes up and down, doesn't it, in life? That battle the, the, the for living and staying focused on the right things and the best things to keep that passion strong and present is really hard. I also think there's some of you who rejected faith because you just don't like organized institutional religion. So can I ask you a question, if that's you? Do you like disorganized religion better? I mean, seriously. I mean, disorganized just sounds like confusion and lack of focus to me. Our real goal at Quest as a people is to be a church where you can be honest, you can be curious with your questions, your disagreements, your issues. You can find a place where you can be empowered in your journey, wherever you're at in your journey, and you can seek God wholeheartedly with friends who are beside you, who are encouraging you, who are invitingly challenging you to grow into all the good that God has for you in this life. So as we wrap up our series today, we're going to talk about one core issue that I I really think we all recognize to be true in life, but frankly, we don't like to face it. Just kind of a little quick preview for next week. Next week is the actual close of the series. We're going to have a a special guest speaker, Becky White, next week. Some of you have heard parts of her story. I got to hear her whole, a, a, a larger portion of her story that she shared with 300 people at a community event earlier this year, and it brought me to tears. Her story illustrates so many things we've talked about in this series in such a powerful and beautiful way as it shows how God can come into a person's life who is so desperate, so in such difficult heartache situations and bring healing and beauty. So I want to encourage you, if there's anyone you know who has distanced themselves from God because of pain or disappointment in their life or questions as to whether God is good, I want to invi- I want to ask you to invite them to come with you next week. The entire message is going to be Becky's inspiring story, and I guarantee you it's going to touch your heart and touch your friends' hearts 
who come with you next week. So today, let's start this way. I want to ask you what I think is a really challenging question. I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. Being honest with ourselves is hard, isn't it? Because oftentimes what that means is it means we have to do something. We have to change something. I mean, being honest with ourselves means we often need to ask forgiveness and be humble and, and, and admit something that we don't want to admit. But, but here's the truth, isn't it? Self-deception always, always, always takes us to a bad destination, doesn't it? When we're not honest with ourselves, it's like slamming an immovable lid on our growth and slowly suffocating ourselves. For example, take a, take a moment to imagine maybe your growing up years and what they would have been like if your dad and mom had been able to be more honest with themselves to face what they needed to face better. How different would your life be today? Maybe for some of you that doesn't relate. So think about this. Think about some of the relationships. Some of you, if your boss had been more, more, more able to face and be honest with themselves, your path to work success would have been very different. In fact, some of you, if you had been honest with yourself, your path to career success would have been a whole lot less difficult in your life, wouldn't it? In fact, some of you... If you or your spouse had been able to be honest with yourselves, you'd still be married. And you wouldn't have had to go through the pain and difficulty of divorce and loss. Isn't that true? So you might be thinking, how does this relate to me distancing me and my distancing myself and my faith and stepping away from my faith altogether, possibly? That's a good question. So I'm going to point us to a profoundly, really simple answer through four quotes and questions. Simple doesn't mean it's easy. Let's plunge in here. There's a famous Oxford grad, an NYU atheist professor named Thomas Nagel. He published a book called Mind and Cosmos in 2012, a book that sent shockwaves through the scientific and secular atheist communities because of its subtitle, which read, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinism Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Now, that's my kind of title and subtitle. The creative team always makes fun of me because my titles are always so long. I mean, if, if I was the one titling these sermons, we'd need to increase the character limit on our webpage, and I think our wonderful graphic designer would cry and quit. <laughs> Nagel actually argues that the scientific community has done the exact same they accused, same thing they accused the Christian community of doing, namely that the scientific community defaults to the belief of natural selection to explain every gap in scientific knowledge, just as they accuse the Christians of often wrongly trying to say the gaps in our understanding are proof of God. In an earlier work, Nagel actually goes further saying, he says this, he says, I want to be, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Isn't that a bold statement? I want atheism to be true, he says. Nagel actually goes further with his gut level honesty and he says, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's astounding honesty for an atheist, isn't it? Especially. 
Nagel saying, I hope, I don't want there to be God. I don't want reality to be that way. Why? Because if it is, it requires something of me that I don't want to do, be, or give in life. Some of us have never given ourselves the permission to be that honest. Because if you did give yourself that permission, you're smart enough to know that it requires change. And you're smart enough to know there's a big difference, a really big, important honesty difference between the statement, I don't believe, and I don't want to believe, isn't there? It's different than saying, I used to believe in Santa Claus, and then I discovered it was really grandpa wearing the suit and the, the fake beard, and, and so I learned, and now I don't believe. It's different than that, isn't it? I don't want to believe is not a matter of information and discovery, is it? I don't want to believe is a matter of will. So here's the question. Did your faith become a little more withdrawn, a little less passionate, a little less all-in, all-consuming, or, or maybe even go away because things didn't truly add up, you didn't get all the answers you needed to import, in important areas of your life, and, and therefore you stepped away? Is, is that why you're where you're at? Or... Did you decide to stop believing because faith became inconvenient, uncomfortable, unsettling, and you had to put distance yourself to doing God because you didn't want God or God's ways in that area of your life? And then you stopped believing. And one day you realized that stopping believing isn't an argument, it's a decision, so then you proceeded to develop arguments to support your decision to not believe. In other words, did your decision to stop believing precede the arguments you used to support your unbelief? Whether it's unbelief totally or just distancing yourself from just a piece of morality in the Bible or whatever it is. See, even as we've partially demonstrated through this series, there are lots of solid answers to questions that led you to unbelief, which other people have also been really intelligent about, and it has led them to belief, not unbelief. So if we want answers, let's seek answers, right? But this is a really tough issue for us to be honest with ourselves, isn't it? If you jumped the fence and moved away from your faith or distanced from a portion of it because of your will, because of, you, of what you wanted, you that you just didn't want something about Christianity to be true, whether it was a moral issue or an explanation of evil and suffering or something else. If your decision was a matter of will and want to, then no amount of information is ever going to change your mind and lead you to a vibrant faith. See, that's why if you're a Christian and you're sharing your faith with someone so often, so often, many times arguments you make about faith just bounce off really intelligent people because it isn't about information. It's about will and want to. Blaise Pascal, one of history's most famous physicists and philosophers, wrote this. He said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Is that not true of us all? I mean, almost none of us 
say are really willing to to, to give up and, and and wake up one day and say I'm going to give up all that I believe, all my presuppositions. I'm going to I'm going to change my entire worldview and all my actions if truth dictates that I do so. I mean, if you wake up like that every day, you are like one in a trillion, and people probably don't want to spend a lot of time with you because you're really uncomfortable to be around, right? Very few of us, if any of us, if we're really honest about ourselves, we're not on a truth quest. We are on a happiness quest. And if some truth helps us get there along the way, fine, but it's, but it's really about what makes my day feel better, easier, more full of life and laughter. At the end of the day, I just want to be happy, whatever it takes. And if truth challenges my moral boundaries, telling me I shouldn't do something that I, that I really want to do, that I think will make me feel loved, think it will make me feel wanted or feel joyful or feel valuable, well, happiness is going to win, right? St. Augustine says it this way. He says, we love truth when it enlightens us. We hate truth when it convicts us. So here's the deal. We know that to be true of ourselves, don't we? I mean... All you have to do is think back to when you were a child arguing with your parents, right? Were you really arguing to find the truth, or, or did you just want what you wanted in that moment? Were you the kid who said, Oh, Mom and Dad, you are so right. I really do want the truth, Mom and Dad, so I'm happy not to have the ice cream and the donut. Just give me broccoli and Brussels sprouts for dessert from here on. You didn't argue that way with your parents. We wanted what we wanted. The truth is, the truth didn't really matter that much to us. But, but here's something we all know about that and know about ourselves in those moments. When you won those arguments as a kid, when you only had to have that one piece of broccoli in order to have as much ice cream as you wanted, you often walked away from winning those arguments and you knew what was really true and right and good. But you got what you wanted, so, you know. Or maybe you had an argument with your spouse, and in the middle of it, you knew. You knew. You ever been in an argument with your spouse, and in the middle of it, all of a sudden there's this loud uh-oh that goes off in your mind. It doesn't make it to your face, but in your mind, it's there, and you know. You know. But what do you do? You just keep running on arguing, right? Why? Because we're not really trying to get a truth. We're trying to win and feel good about ourselves. So we argue, we outsmart the other person. We zing them with a one-liner that shuts the conversation down, leaving you feeling like you have the last winning word, thinking and saying, see, I got you, and I'm right. And when the conversation is over, you know. You won, you had more facts, you used better words, you found leverage for your arguments, but you know, right? Andy Stanley talks about it this way. He says, when we won't acknowledge what we suspect to be true, when we won't look for fear of what we might see, there's something else going on in the mix. Something else is driving the energy of the conversation. Something that we are more than we're willing to admit. So, what is that? That's the big question of the day. What is that? If you are one of those people who just doesn't want to believe 
What is that? Maybe you've never been able to admit that you don't want to believe that it really isn't based on information and facts, but right now you're thinking, sure, I, I have all these arguments, I can always bring up a few difficult questions, and I can throw in a couple zingers, and if I just continue to use those, people usually give up and go away, and I don't have to face the conversation, I don't have to deal with the situation honestly about myself, because I don't want to believe. Could it be that the real reason you jumped the fence and stepped away from your faith or, or just aren't all in and put a little bit of distance there and just kind of you're this moderate Christian? Could it be that the real reason you were a little bit less passionate in your faith than you used to be? Is it because of the reasons and the arguments, the excuses, or even your painful history that you cite? Could it be that if there's a God, then I'm guilty. Could it be that there are enough things in your past, big enough, embarrassing enough, threatening enough, that even if you've done a good job of trying to escape the guilt of the wrongs you've done, that those things still pop up and they make you feel guilty and you know you're guilty. But you just like to dismiss them by saying, I was young and I made some mistakes. Right? Could it be that if you really admit there is a God, that you're actually cracking the door to the possibility that those things weren't just mistakes, they were something much bigger, that you sinned, that if God, then those mistakes were not something that just affected me, they, they hurt others, and you owe people in ways that you can never repay because you can never go back and redo those relationships with your kids or your spouse or your parents or your friends. And the weight of those decisions follow you today and they still haunt you today. And yet, what I know about life as a pastor and as a person, and I think all of us know, is when we open that door and bring all that stuff out in the open, the mistakes, the sin, the past, that seems too difficult to bear in the face, that while it terrifies us, letting it out into the open is the beginning place for growth and change. Maybe that's your story. Or maybe this is your story. If there's a God, then I'm accountable. And who wants to be accountable? I mean, this goes all the way back to the original sin in the creation story, the Garden of Eden. And, and, and regardless of what you think about the biblical creation story, whether you think it's historical fact or whether you think it's myth, it really doesn't matter. Because even if it's myth, it is one of the most profoundly true-to-life myths ever written because it explains so much about life and reality. The sense of the Garden of Eden is it's this huge place of abundance with absolutely everything you'd ever want in a paradise. And God says, it's all good. You can have it all except for this one thing. And the serpent comes to them in the story and says, accountability, obedience, it's, that's just arbitrary. God's trying to withhold something good from you. God's just self-protective and jealous and wants to keep you from good things just so God can feel in control, just so he can be mean or protect his sense of being and worth. The original sin is not wanting to face and trust God and not wanting to be accountable for what that means when we do that. It's a force that at some level drives every single one of us. But think about it for a second. 
unaccountable people, people without accountability, they make really bad, hurtful decisions over and over again in life, don't they? We know that. I mean, just look back at your high school or your college years when you were unaccountable and some of the bad decisions you made. And if you put two people who are unaccountable in a marriage, you know what's going to happen? Unrelenting conflict, right? If God, then you have to be accountable and you have to submit. And who wants to submit? I mean, why, why do we resist things that we know are good for us? Why do we still argue and blow up in conversations with those we love? Because, because we don't like feeling guilty. We don't want to be accountable. We don't want to submit. So we live fast-paced, busy lives, uh, distracted by activity and music and videos and games and phones until life gets our attention. And when life gets our attention, we have to face this even further, that if there is God, then I'm... There's God. And I've been... Why is that word so hard to say? And it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, what is pride? What is it in you that you can't deny that makes it so hard to admit you're wrong? I know you're like that. Why? Because I'm like that. Because every person I've ever met is like that. What is that about us? We know in our minds we're wrong. In our hearts, we're wrong. We have plenty of background and history to know we're wrong. What is it that makes it so hard for us to admit that we're wrong and admit what we know is true? See, each of us needs to find the answer to that question because we all know, in fact, most of us have actually preached to other people. We all know that humility is the way forward. We all say it. We all know it. Humility makes us wiser and smarter because it makes us open to new information. Humility, we say, makes us bigger. Why do we know that? Because when leaders and politicians are not humble, we don't respect them. But when they are humble, we think of the world of them. Right? I've been wrong is the most direct route to discovering what is right and good and best in life. Could it be that if there is God and I'm guilty, that I'm accountable? I'm wrong. And if this is true, then are you just deciding to stick with your reasons to keep God at a distance because of your will and your lack of want to to face that stuff? See, but here's what we have to recognize. Those, they're not arguments against or for anything. They're just responses that explain why you've developed an arsenal of arguments to help you justify the decision you wanted to make. Can we just be honest? For some of you, the arguments you used to justify why you walked away from faith or why you selectively followed Jesus instead of being all in, those arguments came after your decision to not want to be accountable. Because you couldn't find any other way to deal with the guilt and still be with God. Or maybe it was because you didn't want God to be who he was and is. So you developed an argument to make it so. But this brings us, really, to the outrageously good news. 
When you're willing to recognize that and be honest with that, okay, the idea of God terrifies me. I, I feel uncomfortable. He makes me feel inadequate. And the, the real issue is not God's existence, but your want to, your resistance. When you get to that point, if you just take that little step of acknowledgement, you're going to find yourself right smack dab in the middle of the greatest narrative the Bible tells of all that God is doing in all of human history. The epic narrative of God loving and pursuing relationship with rebellious humanity. And that is good news. Because when you're finally willing to admit that, that it's not about God's existence. It's not about science. It's not about my views of the Bible or other people's views of the Bible, whether it's trustworthy. It's not about my heart's willingness. It's about my resistance. It's about my rebellion and my sin. Then, when you admit that, if there is God, then there's forgiveness. Your rebellion, your sin, your mistakes, your failures, your shortcomings, your imperfections, whatever you choose to call them, become the platform for you to experience the demonstration of God's love for you. So Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's he saying there? He's saying, while we were still Oopsers. While we were just making mistakes. While we were just another person in nobody's perfect world. No. Okay, I knew I wasn't doing the right thing. But I did it anyway. I said hurtful words on purpose even though I know better. I said it to spite her and get her off my back, and surely I knew, sure, I knew I would regret it. I knew I would regret it, but I did it anyway. I did it on purpose. Come on. We know we're that way, don't we? We know that's true about each and every one of us. Let's just be honest. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, why all the blood, the gore, the beating, the cross, all that seems just so brutal and weird. Why? Well, here's at least part of the why. And again, this is something I think we all know to be true. Jesus dying for us is because you, you can never have a, relation, a loving relationship with anyone who's unwilling to sacrifice for you. That's the way you know someone loves you, Right? I mean, if you marry someone and all they want is to have it all be about themselves and, and they want it to be easy all the time and whatever sacrifice comes up, they say, no, I'm not going to do it. What kind of love is that? He doesn't love at all, right? And Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friend. And we know all that is true, right, and best, and good. And God, get this really important. God, it says, demonstrates his love for you. Every offense you've ever made requires forgiveness and requires restitution for that wrong to be set right, reconciliation of right relationship and healthy standing to take place. In Christ, this is what it means to be in the story of Christianity, to be a follower of Jesus, that God demonstrated, tangibly acted on your behalf to give secure forgiveness and to make restitution for you, to pay the price for you and all of humanity in order to restore 
relationship to make right the cost of the pain of your rebellion. So that if there's God, then there's also truth. Don't we know this as parents especially? If our kids disobey, it's, it's relationship that's broken. It's the trust of the relationship that's broken. It's relationship that needs to be restored. And that's actually what Paul goes on to say in one of the next verses. He says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, the right relationship to him through the death of his son. Right relationship, unbroken relationship is restored between God and you if you receive the work of God and follow him in relationship. If there's God, then there's truth. If there's God, then there's an explanation for the oughts we all feel in life. I gave you the point out of order, didn't I, a second ago? But you got it. Both the oughts that you do do and the oughts that you don't do. The oughts that govern your actions or govern your feelings and reactions, even when you ought not to have treated your spouse or friend that way, but you did it anyway. Isn't it interesting that we know what others ought to do when it comes to us? So we get angry and we're quick to judge. And when others don't do what they ought to do, and they let us down, they offend us, they hurt us, they discount us. But none of us ever do what we know we ought to do so often. But for ourselves, we tend to make excuses, right? What is that? What is that? If there's God... There's truth. There's morality. There's a basis for justice, an explanation of the law of nature that is in your heart that you respond to every single day through the oughts that you pay attention to in your own life. When we're honest with ourselves, the reality is at some point, in some place in all of our lives, none of us want to follow God. At some place, in some area of all of our lives, we are not wanting God in His ways and have caused and that has caused us to jump the fence and put up walls and distance ourselves from God. For some of you, that meant leaving your childhood faith behind and leaving the church of Christianity. For others of you, that, that meant keeping God at a comfortable distance, but not really being all in with Him. You may know this or may not know this, that Jesus had brothers and sisters. The eyewitness account gives us some of their names. Jesus' most famous brother is a guy named James. The eyewitness accounts of Jesus' record actually talk about his family, uh, believing that during his ministry, during, uh, before he died and was resurrected, that they thought he was crazy. In fact, in one place, at least one place, at one time, they came and tried to take custody of him. They tried to forcibly get him committed because he was crazy. But after the resurrection, they changed their minds. Why? We said it before because when someone rises from the dead, that's just you do, right? You admit you're wrong. It's hard to say, but you admit it, right? And James, the brother, or James, Jesus' brother, I think would have said it this way. He said, I saw Jesus die. I left flowers at his graveside. I saw his lifeless body beaten to a pulp, the nail scars in, in his hands and feet, the spear hole that went all the way up into his heart. I saw it. I saw Jesus' dead, lifeless body thrown in a tomb, and then... I had a conversation with him. He was alive. And James admitted he was wrong. He submitted to his brother as his Lord, as God himself. And James received the forgiveness for his public vocal resistance and rebellion against Jesus, even in the face of seeing Jesus perform so many miracles. 
And then in AD 62, he was stoned to death for his faith, never recanting his faith, believing till the very end. And James, before that, wrote a really important letter that got copied and passed all around and became a part of our New Testament. And unlike Nagel and myself with our long titles, the early church fathers just called it James. It's not creative, but it's just kind of effective, right? In this letter, James says something that I think wraps up our entire conversation for these past five weeks. In James 4, it says this, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And James goes immediately on to use some language that we don't readily use today and don't relate to maybe, but he says, wash your hands, you sinners. It's figurative language to say, acknowledge you're wrong and do something about it. Wash your hands, bring it into the open and deal with it. Because you knew what you did was wrong. You knew. No one needs to convince you. You know. And then he goes on and says, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. In other words, stop playing games. Come on, stop waffling. Quit arguing in your head against what you know deep down is true because all it does is make you unstable, bouncing back and forth. It makes you double-minded when you do that. Look at the stuff you're afraid to face, afraid to acknowledge. The stuff you know is true, but you don't want to be true because you know it will demand something of you. Be honest. There's no reason to hide from God. I mean, that's kind of funny anyway. By definition, how do you hide from God? Be honest. Don't hide between, behind arguments and, and facts that you muster up to cover the reality that you don't want to face. You didn't want God in that area of your life or maybe in your life at all. Instead, do what James says just a verse later or so. Humble yourselves before the Lord. This is how we come near to God. This is how you get close to anyone. Humility is how you receive compassion and forgiveness. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then James goes on and tells us what God will do in response. And he says, and he will lift you up. This is how God will carry you through any difficulty you will ever face in your life and bring peace and joy and healing and purpose to your life. And because this is so important, just one chapter later, James says it again, reemphasizing it in a different way. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Come on, worship team. Here's the big question for the day. Was it, what does an honest response to God look like for you right now? What does an honest response to God look like wherever you're at for you right now? Is it admitting that your rejection and your distancing from God is really more about your will and your want to than it is about your arguments and your reasons and your disbelief or your modest belief or tame belief of keeping God at a distance and just being cool about it? Is it Recognizing you need to humble yourself and be open to finding healing? What does an honest response to God look like for you right now? Would you stand as we invite God to come and speak to each one of us? Lord, I pray that you'd come to each one of us because your word teaches us that our hearts can be so deceptive and, and we've talked about how that can be so true and we, I think we probably all really agree and acknowledge what we said today that 
is so true about us. So Lord, would you come and would you help us have honest response to you right now? For some of you, you you've held yourself off from God and, and walked away from God for so long and you're not even sure you believe anymore. anymore. For you, it, it, it's, it's turning around and repenting and accepting Him. Maybe, maybe for you, maybe for some of you, it's, it's that you've, you've wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but you didn't ever really want to be all in, so you've just refused to get baptized. Maybe, maybe that's an honest response for you. Just to say, I'm going to take a public step and do something that Jesus asks us all to do publicly, and I'm going to be all in. For others of you, maybe there's a difficult area of your life that you really, really love God, but there's one area that you know, and I don't even have to tell you what it is, you know that you're holding God at a distance, that there's more there for you, that he wants more for you in that area, but, but because of circumstances, because of arguments, because of disappointment, I don't know what it is, you're just, you're just holding him at a distance. As we continue to worship, just in your own words, begin to take that honest response to wherever God's speaking to you right now. If you're at home, 
you know, if you can, get on your knees and just pray for that. And the fourth one was one, it was count the cost. And that's not a negative word. That's actually an invitation from Jesus to set aside the distractions that are keeping you away from the more that he's inviting you to, this life of great adventure, and to grasp onto that with all that you have. And someone shared with me just before this service that um, they felt like there's someone, I don't know if you're here or you're on Facebook, but you've experienced a real severe trauma and you've got a lot of confusion around that. And if that's you, we'd just love to pray for you. So. I also felt like God, uh, while we were singing the last song, that there's somebody here who, when I made the invitation to what's your honest step, that there was a very powerful, difficult thought that came into your mind. And the very first thing you thought in your mind was, if I go there, life's going to be out of control. I want to encourage you to just come and get prayer. You don't even have to say what that issue is, but if that's you, come and get prayer. Get some counsel on how to face that issue and not allow life to get out of control because God wants to bring freedom to you. God bless. So glad you're here. I hope this next week, uh, veterans on your way out, please get the so deserving of more. I, I would love to figure out in the future to be able to even do greater honors for you, but we're just so grateful for you. So get the goodies. Enjoy being celebrated today. We're so thankful for you. Uh, this week, invite your friends who question whether God is good, who've gone through difficulty and pain, because they will be inspired, and I think God is really going to work through Becky's story next week to touch a lot of lives. So invite your friends. Bring them with you. We'll see you next week. God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.